That's a huge question and one that I would rather not answer, but I'm going to answer it. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. I was just kind of noodling on this very idea, so it's funny you bring it up. It's a good question. That's a great question. I love this question. Yeah. That's a good question. Count on Sci-Fi for me to be there asking all of the questions. It's a really good question. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. go ladies and gentlemen we are starting another week it is monday march 6th we're all still alive here <laughs> welcome everybody my name is jason hot i'm the editor here at sci-fi for me.com you can also find us at sci-fi for me tv and sci-fi for me radio where uh, you can catch this show and the itch tool podcast as podcasts and we're slowly moving, porting foreign bodies over as well. Uh, so you can listen to that one. And we've been debating whether or not to put Good Morning Multiverse out as a podcast. So there's that. Uh, there's that as well. So uh, shout out to everybody who is listening to this as a podcast. We always broadcast live to YouTube and Odyssey. The live chat is open. And uh, I see Keely and Dave in there now. We're also on all the social medias. And don't forget the Discord platform. We're on the Discord server, so get on Discord. Join us there. <coughs> all right. Some happy, some happy music so we can discuss the, uh, the end of the world, I guess. The book is coming out tomorrow. It is uh, After the Rapture. Uh, and it is a novella. It is not a. It is not a novel. And the the difference in uh, the difference in nomenclature here. Let me make sure that everybody understands. A novella is not long enough to be a novel, but it's longer than a short story. It's around twenty to fifty thousand words. And this particular one has to do with. The rapture, the end of the end of the world, I guess, the end of everything, and uh, and joining me to talk about it is the author of said tome, Nancy Stolman. Welcome. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Now, I I need to I need to clarify something here because when I was putting this stuff together to promote it, and I was like, okay, well, how am I going to how am I going to do this? Yeah, the Barbie thing kept coming up. And <coughs> out of everything, when I read the first couple of pages, I thought, well, if that's not now, I don't know what is. 
and you have this recurring thing. I'm, I don't want to give away too much in, in the way of spoilers because the book's coming out tomorrow. And the Barbie thing, it, there's a there's a hook in this in this whole thing that has to do with Barbie. And I'm wondering how how you got to that as as an element here. But first of all, let's tell people about what the book actually is. Sure. Yeah. So the book, it's um, and I love that you were doing some distinctions between novel and novella. Um, I even call it a flash novel because I use a lot of elements of flash fiction, uh, kind of putting together flash fiction pieces that then uh, mosaic into a bigger story that would be a novel or novella style story. So, you know, call it what you will. Um, but the book is something that I was writing well before the pandemic. I started writing it in 2015, actually. And so I was really kind of in this um, little bit snarky, little bit like wake up people. This is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and just sort of really commenting on the shared feeling of helplessness that was happening, you know, with every uh, bad thing that kept happening, you know, whether that was shootings or elections or, you know, immigration or it didn't matter. It was like every day there was a new bad thing. Right. And so I was, I, I initially wrote it from this sort of uh, satirical snarky position. What happened is I finished the book in 2020. I finished the book in March, 2020, <laughs> which some of you may recall that month, sent it off to my agent. And then then the world began to not only implode, but everything I was writing was starting to strangely come true. So when you say it, it's now, it's so interesting to me because I wrote it then, but yeah. now it speaks to a different audience. So, well, and the the thing the thing that strikes me most about this the these first couple of pages is that it perfectly encapsulates not only the the virtue signaling i'm going to i'm going to be the white knight keyboard warrior i'm going to wear my pins and my ribbons and my and my wristbands and whatnot to show just how good i am but also the cancel culture that comes along with it because if you're not part of the group you know you're not with us you're against us and and i have to wonder if you've experienced some of that uh, and, and because this is this is such a perfect distillation in two pages, everything that's wrong with the internet. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's so interesting because I've been thinking a lot about satire, you know, and when I was writing this, I mean, to me, to write satire, you you begin in reality. And then you just kind of follow the ley line into a place that you think is ridiculous, right? Yeah. You just kind of slowly get there. So when I was doing this in 2015 and 16, I was taking myself into a place that felt like ridiculous. Like, well, clearly we're not going to get here, you know? <laughs> and then here we are, right? So I think there's something about, you know, maybe it's artists, maybe, you know, it's just people when you tap into that collective goo um, and you start to realize, well, if we continue this trajectory, we could end up in this ridiculous place that now 2023 is not only not ridiculous, but yeah. very much a part of our culture. So, Well, and I have said repeatedly over the last few months, my 2023 bingo card is fill in the blank. So everything that happens, it's just my, my, my natural tendency now is to say, well, of course that's happening. 
You know, of, of, uh, you know, sure, why not? Let's let's just add it to the list. But the other part of that is, you know, this whole idea of the conspiracy theory. You know, you talk about, you know, oh, we'll never get there. And, you know, three years ago, you've got a bunch of people getting labeled as conspiracy theorists. And now you've got the news coming out. P- take your pick of what topic you're talking about. And now, oh, suddenly it's OK to talk about something or, yeah, it actually was that thing that you said it was the thing. But you got canceled and banned off of social media for it. Did did you personally experience any of that, not necessarily as part of writing the book, but just in your own personal dealings and being on social media, did you ever put out any kind of an idea that suddenly got some blowback or some pushback or, oh, Nancy, that's just ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Well, yes. And what, what really strikes me and, and something that I was actually able to blend into the book was that a lot of times when I would, because I don't necessarily um, uh, choose to get into, you know, the social media arguing. So I, I tend not to put things that I think are going to be inflammatory in that way, just because I have better things to do with my time than argue <laughs> with people on social media, uh, as we all do. But that's but, the national um, sport. I know, I know, it's the new Coliseum, right? Yeah. Uh, but I do, I do remember at one point, and I think it was maybe, um, I can't remember what it was exactly, but I put something out that I thought was sort of gentle and just sort of like, you know, hey guys, let's remember this kind of gentle part of this. And I remember getting blowback, but the blowback was coming from people who agreed with me. You know, it was like I was arguing <laughs> with people who were on the same side. And it was like, wait a minute, we agree on this. So what's the problem? And so that's something I was able to work into the book, too, where it was like the the people are mad, mad at the other people for not being mad the right way than they are at the main thing sometimes. So, um, so yeah, it it's almost like the more contracted and aggravated we get at a certain, whatever that may be, um, we're just lashing out at anybody, including the people that are on our side because we feel possibly so helpless with our choices of how to constructively respond, you know, we don't seem to have a constructive option. So it's, you know, yelling on social media, I think, whatever. I think the algorithms for all of the social media has deconstructed the constructive criticism. I mean, there's, there's this, this notion of, you know, the, the, the endorphins and the brain chemistry being so dependent on likes and clicks and shares and retweets and all that other garbage that we sit there and say, okay, well, what if you don't like this, if you don't like this, uh, this tweet from me, then you don't like me. And that's, that's a bad thing. And, and well, what do you mean you don't like what I'm doing? And, and we've seen this a lot in the, um, I'm having some I'm having some issues here with Zoom pixelating things. But we've seen this in the creative space especially in Hollywood where uh you have these people who take offense if you criticize the creation, you criticize the created work and they respond as if you're criticizing them personally. And we had a theory get uh, get kicked into our our Discord server a while back. These people are so, and I say these people. This is a broad brush thing, but in the creative space, you have so many people that are so focused on identitarianism, representation, 
that, you know, that becomes the integral element in whatever it is that they're creating because it's got to represent me. I've got to see myself in this story. And so when you criticize the story, you're automatically just criticizing them by default. Yes, yes to all that. Um, you know, my first thought is that, and this is something that I teach a lot and, and really believe, is that when we identify too much with our creation, that's the problem. And that's the problem either on the on, on this end or even, you know, becoming blocked and not being able to create. Because I think that, that real creations that really speak to people that are universal, um, they come through us but they're not necessarily our genius. It's not like, look at me, I'm a genius here. You know, it's more like I was in the right place at the right time to kind of channel what was coming through. That's sort of how I see it. So, um, so yeah, I think that these creations, if they're done well, should have a life of their own, should be making friends that you don't have to go around behind them and, you know, monitor everything. And so, yeah, I think there has to be separation because, you know, someday I'm going to die or, or anybody who creates anything is going to die, but that creation lives on. So it needs to be able to live on its own. And the, the trouble is when we start to take like ego ownership, I think of things. Right. I, you know, and that's, I think that's an, uh, a good way to, uh, to describe it is ego ownership because it is very much, you know, well, if you don't like this thing, you're, you're, a, you're fill in the blank, you know, I'm going to call you a name. And you're right. We we do need to continue to separate the artist from the art, and that in this in this day and age where social media has polarized everybody on on one side of the issue or another, it's very hard to do. I mean, you and and very small little things. And you're right. the the people The people who agree with you are going to be the ones that that criticize the harshest, and. <clears throat> Just from a general read of things, it seems to be, for me, that a lot of those people who are the most harshest critics of the people who agree with them are very far progressive left. And they circle the wagons around whatever it is that you criticize. I mean, you can't criticize X, but we'll do it, and we'll do it viciously and violently at some point. And, you know, yeah, they, the right will criticize their own to a certain extent, but some people are just outright mean about it. And then here you come with this little book about about after the rapture, and you've got Barbie doll stuff all over throughout the thing. I mean, uh, how, how did that happen? Yeah, the Barbie, well, there, there's like a part in reality where the Barbie began and then the Barbie took on a life of its own. So um, so what happened to me in 2016 was I was hit by a drunk driver in a car accident, terrible car accident, probably shouldn't have lived. I'm here, yay. Um, but I had this, uh, my arm was messed up. And so I had uh, pins and I was just kind of like walking around like that zero for a while. And so I was jokingly calling this my Barbie arm. And, you know, just sort of like, how's your Barbie arm today? Oh, Barbie arm's doing fine. And so, so, so I started writing into Barbie arm, like, wouldn't that be funny if somebody really was given a Barbie arm? And then it just took on its own life. And then this, this character, you know, now has a Barbie arm, now has a Barbie house, now has a Barbie boyfriend. And it's all in kind of a Kafka sort of way. It's like, 
everything's happening to the character they're not really they don't really have agency about this you yeah. know so it's sort of this onslaught of like i'm turning into a barbie but i can't seem to pull the plug on this somehow and so yeah that was a really delightful discovery that happened you know mid-writing which is when all the good discoveries happen is mid-writing and i just went with it you know and now i feel like barbie and this in this because Barbie really is an archetype for us now sure. in the society, yeah. you know, and now this archetype is really playing in this rapture, post-rapture arena, and all the things that are Barbie kind of uh, colliding with all the things that are rapture and dystopic, it's it's kind of, there's an alchemy happening that that's beyond me, you know, it's it's an alchemy that, that readers are going to take far beyond what I could have just you know, manipulated on the page. Well, let me ask you this because I, in in various different places, you start off your sections before the rapture, after the rapture, but there's really not a whole lot of the rapture. You're you're, you're using that as a as a as a distinction point, but you don't really go into, you know, here's here's the rapture. Here's our our ex. You know, here's what happens and. I think there's one spot where it kind of feels like your main your main character kind of experiences something like that, but then we're into the next thing. Was there ever a point where you thought, well, maybe I should put this in, or did you did you leave that element out specifically because we're just using the rapture as a defining point? There is a rapture early on, and and the whole point about the early on rapture is that it's a complete disappointment right everybody right. wanted it to be the spectacular rapture and it ended up being kind of a dud and you know i'm thinking back to things like the mayan calendar was going to end in 2012 and everybody was like oh my gosh here we go you know and then it was a dud nothing yeah. happened or, right. or even y2k you know i filled my mouth up <laughs> and uh and then nothing happened, right? So I, I was kind of playing off this idea that the rapture is coming and then everybody's ready for the rapture and all the towns are ready and everybody's gathered for the rapture and here's the rapture and we've got our t-shirts and we've got our pom-poms and then the rapture's a dud. And so really, in a way, a good thrust of the book, until we get to the very end and then, it, then the real rapture starts to appear, but a good deal of the book is people being angry that the rapture wasn't what they wanted it to be. And so now how are they going to deal? You know, the people who thought they were going to be lifted away are still here. And the people who didn't believe in it, you know, are still here. And so now it's like, what do we do after the rapture? You know, right. if, if we thought this was going to change everything. And, you know, I think that that applies to so many things in society. You know, we're waiting for this one thing to happen so that so that everything will be different. But that one thing either doesn't happen or doesn't happen the way we think it's going to happen. And then how do we go? Like, and then what, what do we do now? You know? Yeah. Now uh, we've got a question in, in the chat. Does, uh, do you, does your story deal with all, all of the different people to be the claiming to be the second coming of Christ? And there's, there's not a lot of that, but there is the antichrist uh, element in, in all this. And I don't want to spoil that because it's, it's a little, it's a little absurd. <laughs> <laughs> how that happens, but it follows a line. And I thought, well, of course that's how that's going to play out. Uh, but is is anything in here, you talk about all of these people and their expectations of the rapture, is any of this based on your own 
expectations of a rapture? I mean, there are there are some denominations that teach that there's going to be a rapture, and we've got the thousand years of tribulation on the world. You know, the whole left behind mentality thing. And there are there are congregations and, and denominations that teach that that's not going to happen. I mean, when Jesus comes for the second coming, it's that's it, trumpet sound, and it's all over. Do you have a particular belief that plays into this, or? No, I'm, I'm actually, um, so I, I don't identify with any religion, but I do kind of as an anthropologist of life, find religions fascinating. So I certainly read up on religions and um, read sacred texts. And uh, for this one, certainly read a lot of biblical texts and things like that. Um, I was raised Catholic, but I don't consider myself um, belonging to any religion at this point. So no, my, my, kind of visions of this is really just kind of playfully picking out those pieces that that kind of fit into the absurdity of what I'm creating because I do consider myself like a an absurdist you know so for me being able to take things to an absurd place is part of how I comment without commenting like commenting through the back door a little bit so no I don't have any particular um religious agenda or even beliefs around this now, you mentioned teaching earlier. You're a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Does do any of your classroom discussions ever spark an idea that lends itself to something that you're writing? Is oh, I hadn't thought about that. Let me let me plunk that into the middle of this. Do you, do you, that all the time. all the time i think if you're doing it right it should be happening all the time and you know whether that's classrooms at c boulder i also teach kind of private workshops i run um, retreats and things like that so i get to be around people in a writing space quite often and many of those people are very accomplished writers you know in their own right so um in a lot of the spaces in which i'm teaching i'm really just facilitating i'm really just kind of sparking the conversations and so absolutely i'm always getting ideas or or a lot of times you know a question comes up even like here and as i'm answering the question i'm like oh i think this is for me too or, you know i think right. that this is what i i'm saying it because i must need to hear it too so i think if you're doing it right then you should always be inspired from the teaching as well as the learning sides well, now, have you been you've been teaching longer than you've been writing, or have they gone hand in hand? When you started one, when you did the other? No, I've been writing longer. Um, I've been writing regularly. Um, gosh, for about twenty five years now. So, um, and I've been teaching for about fifteen. So there was about a ten year period, which I like to think of that ten year period as my ten thousand hours that I put in, you know, to <laughs> right. to consider myself a real writer. Um, so I spent about 10 years writing a couple of novels, which I now call lovingly my practice novels. And, um, and then I went to grad school and then I, um, then I started teaching about 15 years ago. So what got you started writing at the beginning? How did the bug bite you? Oh, I was little, I was a little girl. Uh, I was raised in the military, so we were traveling all around. I, I was, um, I lived in Germany and Spain both when I was young. And so maybe it's, you know, that we were moving all the time and I didn't have that childhood best friend or that childhood house or that familiarity um, that books became my friend. And I think that's, uh, I think most people who write, you know, discover books early, I think, but books became my friend. And then 
you know, probably by about age 10, I realized that somebody must have the job of writing all these books. And so why couldn't that be my job? And yeah, pretty much ever since then, I, I took some detours into performance and um, acting and singing other all creative arts always. But um, but yeah, and then uh, then I decided to really uh, when I was about 20, I decided that I'm going to do this seriously. And Stephen King says he sits down every day and writes for eight hours like it's a job. So I don't got eight hours, but I can sit down every day and treat it like a job. So I've been doing that for a long time. Do you have a, a particular favorite when it comes to what kinds of stories you tell genre wise? I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a number of different kinds of things, but uh, it does, it does feel like you're leaning a little bit into the, absurdist parody spider robinson type of of stories here yeah i would say that most of my stories now um initially way back in the ten thousand hours period and even my very first book um were much more realistic and i certainly write nonfiction things i wrote a book called going short which is all about writing but um when I write for pleasure, I almost always go for a small form. So I've been working in the flash fiction realms for 15 plus years. And they always seem to end up in this surreal, dark humor. I would say that surreal, dark humor is where I end up a lot. Mm -hmm. And a little poetic, a little lyrical, um, sometimes really funny, sometimes just slightly funny. Um, but I really enjoy not writing realism I, I think my first book and my earlier things were realistic and you know the the less sophisticated reader reads something that's realistic from you and assumes it's true assumes it's you wants to ask you you know did that really happen to you and it's like that was a novel like <laughs> you're not supposed to ask me that and and then I just realized, you know what? I don't want people asking me that anymore. I'm going to go into the weird. And so I just kind of went into the weird world. And all of a sudden in the world of absurdism and surrealism, I feel like I can say all the things that I wanted to say better. And nobody's asking me if that was really true. It's just clear that, of course, that didn't happen. I never had an affair with a fox. You know what I mean? Nobody's ever asked me that. So. Well, now, okay. So are a lot of a lot of times when we talk about humor, Humor is a way of couching specific criticisms of things. I mean, George Carlin's entire career was basically taking hits at everybody. And there's been discussion lately, especially given how you start this book, you know, the, the idea of people getting offended at everything and the, the, the late-night comedians all going political and nobody is able to make a joke about anything because nobody can take a joke. And you know, I've seen several people comment online that George, can uh, George Carlin would have been canceled after his first performance if he was around now as opposed to then. So do you, do you ever find that you're using humor as a critique or is that just a, a natural byproduct is it planned or is it just happening it's just happening yeah it's it's almost just like i'm watching something happening and i'm uh, you know just sort of making fun of it as it's happening and then when i write it you know it may come out as a critique but really it's more of an observation i think that i'm never really coming up with a critique and then couching it in humor i'm always just observing through my snarky lens 
and that may be delivered as a critique. But if it's delivered as a critique in that way, I feel like it's more authentic because it's not that I've got a, a hidden agenda. Well, excuse me. Well, there there is there is always an element of truth in all humor, I think. Yeah. And sometimes better than straight. I think people, you know, the court jester was able to say things to the king that nobody else could say. So I think that humor doesn't get enough credit. And I think that humor is powerful, powerful way for us to um, remove ourselves emotionally from a situation and kind of look at it a little bit differently. Uh, some of my very favorite uh, pieces of art out there are humorous for that reason. Do you think just looking at society in general and, and having anthropology in your in your wheelhouse there, do you think we've turned a corner in terms of letting comedians be comedians again? I mean, you see all the blowback about Dave Chappelle. Rob Schneider gets dragged in, in social media for, for saying what he says. Are, can comedians be funny yet or have we have we gotten is, is that starting to swing back the pendulum starting to swing back where comedians can actually start saying things and and, mm -hmm. and do that kind of make those kind of jokes do you think you know i'm not a comedian so i can only uh, address that from an audience member and i listen to a lot of comedy i listen to comedy in my car uh, i feel like what's had to happen is that comedians have had to maybe um, overcompensate in the areas that are not being canceled right now. And so, you know, maybe there's like excess potty humor or, you know, some of the things. And I look forward to like having that arena be a little more sacred in terms of like, let's make fun of, of all the things because I feel like if you, if you make fun of certain things, but you're not allowed to make certain, make fun of other things, that just sort of sets up a dynamic uh, that feels kind of um, anti the whole point of humor, you know? Right. And so is it swinging back? I don't know. I think it will. I think that we, I personally think that we are on the verge of a maybe post pandemic or I don't know, post rapture uh, creative renaissance. I do think that we're going to see a flowering of art and music and uh, literature and poetry and comedy. So I think that it's all going to find a much healthier expression, but maybe we're a couple years out still is what I think. Okay. We will continue on that thread because that prompts another question. I'm going to ask Nancy Stolman's our guest, and we will be back with more right after this. Stand by. You're watching sci-fi for me TV delivering the multiverse since 2009. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi For Me TV. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You're watching Sci-Fi For Me TV, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Some old-fashioned tech there on the shelf. 
Uh, for those of you listening to this as a podcast, you're missing out. There's my Macintosh and my Beta and my three-quarter video decks. Some people will recognize that if you are of an age. <sighs> Those were the days. Back live from the bunker, Jason out here, along with my guest, Nancy Stallman, who is the author of the novella After the Rapture. And Nancy, I wanna I wanna ask you, we're talking about art, uh, art coming back and, and art expression and, and that sort of thing. One of the things in the book is the uh, the development of the artist compound. I mean, we've seen these before, the artist communes and, and, and that sort of thing. Is there a particular one that you had in mind that you uh, that you leaned on as an example to, to pull from this and say, this is, this is the one I've kind of got in mind when I'm talking about this? No, actually. And, and the way that I set it up in the book, it was less of like, the artist deciding to leave and create a commune and more of like the artist getting kicked out. Like the people were like, we can't handle you. (laughs) So y'all have to go live in the tents over there. And so it almost became like they were rejected. Maybe more like if we were going to think biblical, maybe more like a John the Baptist in the desert type thing, you know, but um, no, in the book, it was very much like, you know, we can't handle you. We can't process all these emotions. Um, isn't that your job? Aren't y'all supposed to do that? Why don't you go get out of town and go do that so we can go back to pretending everything is okay? And so in the book, we've got the artist's kind of compound, or I, I think of them almost as like camps, um, where they are still doing their art, but it's but now it's getting snuck back in. It's almost like black market. Do you anticipate something like that happening? Because... In in certain circles, uh, there are people who are preparing, we'll say, uh, stockpiling food and supplies, you know, first aid and and you know setting up gardens and and water catchment systems and all these all these different things, you know, buying up ammo and preparing for the apocalypse. And there's a certain amount of validity to the concern because you take a look at what's going on nowadays i mean inflation's up we're we're looking at possibility of world war three i mean just so happens i mean how many train derailments have we had in ohio it's it's almost like ohio is is under attack almost just the number of disasters that are there but also you know you've got food shortages coming in you've got all these these food processing plants catching fire uh, you have uh, energy crisis, I mean, supply chain issue, all of these different things, and people are looking around, going, "What do you mean I gotta pay five dollars per egg?" You know, it's it's these absurd things, but at the same time, you know, yeah, three years ago we were all pulling toilet paper and paper towels off the shelves. Now we're grabbing everything because it's all going away. Do do we have the issue? coming ahead i mean is it is it realistic to expect disaster is that part of our dna now do you think um you know i think it really kind of goes it's a philosophical question you know um is disaster inevitable or you know do we have some agency can we do something about it i don't have the answer to that 
But I do think if we continue on the trajectories that we're on, then yeah, we're probably going to continue to see unpleasant consequences of those trajectories. So I think if if we want to do anything different, we're going to have to get creative about it and not, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over. Um, is that disaster going to look a certain way? Um, who knows? You know, after I wrote the book and then so many of the things that I had talked about in a joking, satirical way sort of found their way to truth, I would say nothing seems off the list in terms of what could happen <laughs> right. um because as soon as i say well that can't happen you know i i, I could t i could write a story in which the eggs were 50 dollars an egg and then next year they'll be 50 dollars an egg you know so um i think any of it could happen i think it's a matter of like are we seeing you know this is the trajectory if we keep doing this do we like that trajectory are we willing to accept that as uh a likely possibility and what else could we do now i think about that movie a lot Spe speaking of humor that movie um don't look up and which was a brilliant use of humor and you know it's kind of that same thing where they're like we're gonna get hit by a meteor i believe it was so we should do something and everybody's like yeah we're not gonna get hit you know and yeah. then we actually are gonna get hit and then you know here it comes so um yeah i think it's a matter of how you know, how painful is it to not make a change versus how painful will it be to change? You know, that's always the crux that you have to come to to change. I, I frequently see the comparisons to the movie Idiocracy. Yes. And, yes. And they live is the other one, those two things. But and I and I have said on a number of occasions that we are currently living at the intersection of Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, 1984 and Brave New World. And we're right there, dead center in the middle. And some people are, you know, adding adding to that. I think um, Brazil, and I think uh, one other one as as a as a double trifecta there. I think you could add a lot. I mean, any well done uh, dystopia is going to have like glimmers of truth. You know, add add Handmaid's Tale to that. Add you know Station Eleven to that. Add The Stand. You know, that whole opening section with. Uh, Captain Trips was the pandemic, in my opinion. Well, aren't these supposed to be warnings and, <laughs> and not instruction manuals? I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. Is maybe somebody, and and it could be you, it could be anybody else, because maybe we have a handbook, uh, uh, an an owner's guide, a user's manual to bringing about the apocalypse, and then spell out how to destroy the world, and maybe somebody will look at it and say, oh, this is funny, but it's a warning. We should take, we should take heed. <laughs> I don't know. And I think that was my initial. When I first started writing it in 2015, 2016, I think that was where I was going, was that it was like, hey, guys, like, you do realize we're going to end up here if we keep doing this, you know? And the original ending of the book, which I tweaked, um, post-pandemic, but the original ending of the book kind of took us into that place where, you know, uh, the sun explodes, basically, you know, yeah. and, and I realized post-pandemic that we needed less of that reality check slap in the face sort of warning and maybe a different vision, you know, like, okay, guys, if we continue on this trajectory, this could happen, but 
what if we went on this trajectory? Like maybe something else could happen. And so that was the only tweak I did post pandemic. And that was a piece I'd already written. I just kind of moved it to the end. So maybe, maybe injecting a little bit of optimism at the end, like it's not mm -hmm. all quite going to, going to be a terrible thing. Well, a little hope I would yeah. say, you know, and not the hope like, who, okay, I don't have to do anything, but yeah. like, you know, we could walk left instead of right, or we could, you know. I've I've had a conversation with Richard Palinelli on a couple of a couple of occasions. He is part of a movement of authors <clears throat> who describe their work as superversive, and it's it's a it's almost a a reaction, a response to all of these different you know uh, nihilistic. Uh, subversive, we're going to subvert expectations type of thing where you don't have a good guy, you don't have a clear-cut bad guy, you don't have a happy ending, for example, and the superversive authors are sitting there saying, you know, there is room for those stories where the good guy is the good guy and the and the villain is wearing the black hat and twisting the mustache and you don't need his backstory origin and you know, he's abused by his dad, so he'll explain it all away and, and that kind of thing. You know, the good guy wins and he gets the girl and, and there's hope at the end of these stories, you know, like the original Star Wars. You know, there there's hope at the end. And it it's almost as if they're counterculture at this point where Yes, we can tell these kind of stories that give people something to to look up to and aspire to and think that maybe it's not all going to be bad. Yes, and I think that also has to be handled delicately. You know, sure. I think that um, you know, thinking about hopeful uh, messages or happy messages or whatever you may want to call those um, can tip right over into cheesy really quickly, you know? So <laughs> right. I think it's also, you know, as much as satire is a delicate balance, as much as, you know, all these humor is a balance, I think that hope is a balance too. And and so there, again, I think it really has to come from a place of authenticity, a place where you're letting the work speak and yeah. not you, the author, speak, but letting the work say what it needs to say which is sometimes different than what you, the author, thought that the work was going to say and kind of getting out of the way and, and letting the work uh, arrive. Because I do think that these, these artistic creations that come, they are, they're kind of, they come with their own trajectory. They come with their own DNA, their own yeah. blueprints. And we just need to get them to the page or the stage or whatever and, and allow them to like children, you know, your, your children arrive. They're not blank slates. They're, they're personalities that we can influence, but ultimately if we try to control them and make them like us, um, they're going to run away and hate us. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> how much of it, how much of a challenge has it been to get out of your own way in terms of, of saying, no, I don't, because a lot of authors, you know, I mean, we saw this with the, the Hugo Awards, for example. I mean, the political kerfuffle that came out of that for how many years? And the Hugos essentially burned themselves to the ground over this. And the, the criticism of message, lecture, preaching over story, entertaining, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of authors uh, have have kind of bristled at the complaint that you're you're putting too much you're t you're putting too much message into your fiction. Tell a good story, entertain me, 
And if there's a message, yeah, it can be in the subtext. People can get it if they want to get it. But don't hit me over the head with a two by four on it. Just you know, just tell me a good story. Ha- how much of a challenge is it for you, especially doing satire, to sit there and say, okay, the story says this. Na- I'm going to put Nancy in a box over here. The story goes this direction. You know, it's um, it's a process. So at some moments in the process, it's easy. And then at some moments in the process, it gets difficult. I would say that it gets more difficult to me as I get further into the project and I start to kind of hit some walls or my original vision is not landing as well as I wanted it to. And then I have to kind of have a, you know, a heart to heart with myself and the manuscript and realize, you know, okay, I thought it was going to look like this. Maybe I'm really attached to it looking like this. Maybe I I have this clever idea for the form and I really love that clever idea or I've mapped it all out and I have this gorgeous outline and you know this this would not fit in that gorgeous outline so we can't pay attention to that. So um I think at different points in the process it becomes easier and or more difficult, but it's it's not something you you figure out once and then you're good. You know, I think that each each project if you're if you're doing it well is going to challenge you in a different way each project you might think you got it down because you did your last project but the new one is going to make you learn something else and you're going to have to confront yourself in a different way so almost always in all my projects I hit a point where I have to surrender to the work and that can be painful it can be a kind of painful letting go of that clever idea or that or even it was the whole spark that the whole thing began from that I have to let go that often happens does it vary with the length of the work or or is it something that just comes and goes just depends on what you're writing as opposed to how big the project is because you know if you if you're doing a full-blown novel you've got all these different pieces that you've got to keep track of you're doing all this world building uh, whereas with a short story you're you're a little bit more self-contained you're a little bit more uh, you're you're in a smaller box, as it were. I mean, you still got to do your world building, and you have to have your your foundation for that. But does does that process of of getting out of your own way or or creating your environment for this story easier or or just as challenging with the shorter work? I think it's both. Um, I think it's it's about the work, not necessarily about the length. Although if you're spending you know, all the time inside of, of a, like a novel world, you're just spending more time there. Yeah. But um, I think it, I really think of all of my work as short pieces kind of put together. So each of these short pieces, some of them arrive like beautifully in one perfect, you know, intact piece that I just have to write down and then there it is. And then some of them I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. That's, that's kind of how I handle it a lot is that I'm like, I love this idea, but it didn't, it didn't work. So I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And often I write many versions of the same idea until one clicks. And sometimes one doesn't click. But, um, but yeah, I think that we can get really attached to that first version and then want to like autopsy edit it to death and it's just not working. And so I think we have to like, okay, I'm not, I'm I'm just gonna start again. Let's try that again, just from scratch and then see if, see if, if I, 
hook the fish a little differently. Do you edit as you're writing or do you just get it all out, just just put it out on the page, stream of consciousness, and then go back and clean it up afterwards? Because yep. it's always know... separate. Okay. Yeah, right. always separate. And, you know, I, I have multiple levels of that. So everything I write starts by hand in a notebook just about everything, 99% of everything I write starts by hand in a notebooks. Uh, I write in the mornings, I drink my coffee in bed usually, and I write in bed and notebook. And that's when I'm very um, fluid and I'm still kind of half in the dream world. And it's when my best ideas come. So uh, I will be writing then. And then at some point I have to type up whatever seemed interesting. So even in that typing up process, I'm doing like a rough cleanup Right. And then it goes into what I would call the true editing. And to me, that that dreamy, open hearted, non-judgmental part of me can be nowhere near that discerning, uh, tough love kind of editing part of me. They, they need to happen absolutely separately for me. Yeah, uh, I, I had uh, my own experience with flash fiction at one point. There was a. a, a... A buddy of mine, uh, Dayton Ward, who's written for Star Trek, and and he had posted that there was this website that was going to do flash fiction competition. I thought, oh, I'll try my hand at it. And I started it, and I realized this is not going to work as flash fiction. It ended up being the first chapter, and then you go the next. And, and the thing turned out to be an experiment in every chapter has the exact same number of words, um, except for the last chapter, and it turned it turned out okay. I was uh, all right. It's it's fine. It's a it's a book. Okay, fine. But when you're you're doing flash fiction, and now you've because you know, you've had pieces of this get published elsewhere, are these all just kind of disparate ideas that sort of form around a theme, or did you have this this notion of okay, I'm I've got rapture as my key piece now i'm going to write all of these different things around it and they're all separate but they're connected well how, how much of a plan was there yeah um at the beginning hardly any plan at the beginning i just i'm writing pieces that i find interesting and then at some point you know you amass 20 or 30 of these pieces and you're like wait a minute like this they are all living in the same world like these are these are actually playing together and at that point you can start manipulating the threads a little bit, then you can start thinking about, well, how do I order them so that I'm actually creating a kind of narrative arc? And then, oh, okay, well, if this is what we're doing, well, now let's make more pieces that like we need to go over here now. And so for me, it's almost like the pieces, the flashes are like the bricks. And then once we have enough bricks, we start building the structure. So it happens really organically. And this is why it takes me on average four years to write a book because I go really slowly. It happens organically. I take wrong turns. I come back, but um, I almost never plan. And I find, especially as a teacher, I find that, uh, and some people are beautiful planners and like you do that, right? You do you. But for me, I find that when we planned it out too much and we know too much, we can kind of lose interest. You know, it's it's not exciting for us to return to the page every day because we already mapped it all out. We already know what's happening. And so there's nothing in it for me. Like there's there's right. no there's nothing that's pulling me like deeply like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what's gonna happen. I can't wait to sit down and find out. I think 
I think that when people abandon their books, it's sometimes because they know too much and now they just feel like they're punching the clock. There's no emotional payoff in the right. surprise because you, you know how it's going to end. And now I guess, I guess that would put you in the category of pantser. Huh, I guess that's the bit. term now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I started hearing that a, a while back. And I thought, well, it's appropriate, but it's, it's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird word to, to use. To yeah. And I think pantser sort of implies when I see it, um, like doing it quickly and on the fly, yeah. I, I go very slowly. Um, and it takes me a long time for things to kind of coalesce. So it wouldn't necessarily be by the seat of the pants, but I think maybe I would consider it more organic as right. opposed to planned. Like you don't know, like you're planting seeds and you're not exactly sure if you're going to get, are you getting flowers? Are you getting cucumbers? I don't know. You know, you know if my wife thought she was planting flowers and got cucumbers, I think she'd be very surprised. Yeah, <laughs> so. but sometimes that surprise is like, wait a minute, I love cucumbers. I never would have planted cucumbers on my own. Yeah. And suddenly like now I'm crazy about cucumbers, you know, so, so those beautiful surprises that happen are, you know, it, it's, it's why I wake up in the morning you know and so to take that away just seems like taking all the joy out of the process i mean maybe you're going to get the book written faster but to me if you're not enjoying the process there's no point in doing it do you have plans for any longer works or are you going to stay in the short fiction again we'll see what the work wants me to do um my works keep ending right about this length so i've written uh, multiple books now that are flash fiction uh, inspired, but that are at that 120, you know, 140 page uh, mark. I think that that's kind of where I've been naturally cutting off. I'm open to more. I certainly was in those first 10 years, I was writing longer, you know, traditional 60,000 word novels, but um, I've really learned to just trust the story and let the story tell you when it's over and not try to make it longer or shorter to fit an arbitrary something. All right. Another critique that I've seen over the years in both traditional publishing and comics is, well, you're just writing your Netflix pitch. <laughs> ha has it has it ever been a thing where you sit back there and go, oh, this this could be a pretty funny movie? Uh, are are you have you ever have you ever considered any of your stuff getting adapted or maybe thinking ahead and. I'm going to write this story and then I'm going to pitch it to Netflix or Paramount or Amazon or, or anything like that. Do you want to get into that realm? You know, I'm not opposed to it. Um, and, and some of my things have been adapted. Actually, I've had uh, things adapted to stage multiple times. Um, I've had things scored. I've had things adapted to video and to short film. Um, and I think I write in a way that maybe is a conducive for that, uh, but the minute I start thinking, oh, this is going to make a great film, now I've got now I've got a panel of people going like, hmm, you know. And for me to write really authentically, I need to get rid of the reader for a while. Yeah. I have to listen to the story. And if I'm listening to the people, the perceived future audience people who are like, we don't like that, we don't understand that, I can kind of constipate myself before I even get where I need to go. So I never, never think of it in the during when it's all over and it feels like it's a complete thing that, that now is living its own life. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm already thinking now with this book of, 
I'm putting together a book trailer, which will be like a little uh, short film. And I think there's many things that could happen with this, but I can only think about it now that it's that the writing part is over. Now, when you do the book trailer, are you putting on the Barbie arm and you're going to star in the book trailer yourself? You're going to walk around with the. Uh, I will probably snake. star in the book trailer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I hadn't thought about that. So maybe yes. Maybe yes. All yeah. right. Well, and, and uh, Sci-Fi Snipe in the chat says, who is opposed to free money? And and that that kind of that you it's not free, though. Because no. if, so let's say, Netflix comes in and says, we really like this thing, we want to adapt it, now suddenly you've got 12 producers, right. and all of them have different ideas of what this thing is supposed to look like, and who should star in it, and where you're going to shoot it, and how much money there is, and all these different all these different logistical things in addition to the various different creative differences that you're going to have. And suddenly you're going to find yourself possibly pushed out and they're going to keep going and, and then you won't be a part of the process anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what happens. And I think, um, you know, it's great when you can collaborate. I think that it's, it's magical when you're collaborating and also um, too many cooks in the kitchen, you yeah, know? Yeah. So in a way, um, and I remember listening to Michael Andante who wrote the English patient years ago and somebody was asking him, well, what did you think about the movie? Which then won best picture and all this stuff. And he said, you know, I loved the movie. I didn't have anything to do with the movie, um, but I loved it. I thought it was great. And, you know, and, and it kind of said to me like, yeah, his job is writing. That's his calling, you know, not necessarily producing movies. And so, um, I guess I'll have to tell you what happens when I cross that bridge, but, but I also respect that I'm not a filmmaker and, yeah. you know, that other people, if this inspires other people, then perhaps it's got lives that I couldn't have anticipated. You know, I'd, I'd like to be paid for that, sure, but, uh, sure. but I don't necessarily have to control it in the same way that I wouldn't well, over control the writing. Yeah. But on the flip side of that, an argument could be made that if you're, if you're not involved in the process, I mean, I think I think about J.K. Rowling and how much creative control she has, the integrity of the work, you know, yeah. um, who is the steward of that if you're not involved? That that becomes the question at that point. But you Absolutely. mentioned you mentioned collaborations. Uh, ha have you done a lot of that? Do do you plan to do that? Are you open to that? Let's say some somewhere down the down the road we have the Stolman verse this big shared universe thing. Are you open to collaborating with other writers on projects? Yeah, I've never really collaborated on the writing part, but, um, and, and that's, um, I've collaborated, you know, in publishing and in editing, you know, putting together anthologies. I've collaborated with, with musicians, like scoring things that I've written. I've collaborated with actors. Um, so I like to collaborate with people who aren't trying to do exactly what I'm doing, but, um, but no, I think that there's a case to be made in, in all of that. I definitely wouldn't just say, you know, do what you want with my work. Uh, I had a book a couple of years ago come out and, you know, when it went to audiobook, I was like, I gotta, I, I need to read it. I need to be the narrator. And if, if that's not okay, then I'm not going to sell the rights. And, you know, they were like, great, that's fine. So I guess I would hope that that if the right person wanted to collaborate with me, that there would be a mutual respect there. Sure. So if Stephen King calls you up tomorrow and said, hey, you want to write the third talisman book with me? What uh, do you say? I, I would, you know, that would be one of those situations that I would really have to. And I would probably say in, in this fictitious example, <laughs> you know, um, I have a lot to learn from you. Yeah. So I would love to learn while working with you and 
if you're approaching me, then you must respect what I'm doing. And so, yeah, let's go into it in a mutually respectful way. All right. Well, I will uh, let you have the last word there on that. The book is, let me pull this up here. It is uh, After the, well, come on. No, don't, I got don't it right do here. that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Hang on. I got this book. I hit the wrong button here. There it is. After the Rapture from Mason Jar Press. Uh, it is available tomorrow. Nancy Stolman. You can find her work at nancystolman.com. That's Stolman with an H. There is a link in our notes uh, to get to that, as well as her Twitter account. Uh, so go check that out and, uh, and follow her over there. Nancy, are you on any of the other apocalyptic social media platforms? Yes. Yes, Facebook, longtime Facebook. I would say I'm more active in Facebook and Instagram, both. Um, Twitter, I neglect a little bit, but I am there. And uh, yeah, I do my best to put my finger in all those pots. Okay, all right. Well, I will go in and update uh, the links to those as well. And uh, good luck with the book. I will, now that I've finished the book, I will do my best to write a review this week and get that out, and I will send that to you, and, and we'll have that available for people to see. Thank you. Get an idea of, uh, of what to do. So uh, thanks very much for being here today. I really appreciate uh, you coming on, and we'll talk, we'll talk when your next project is, is coming out. I can't wait. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. All right. Thank you, and thanks to all of you for being here. Those of you in the chat, thanks for being here. If you are with us live, if you're in replay, Memorex mode, you can still leave a comment. You send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. Uh, I do want to promote just briefly uh, Critical Blast. RJ is going to have Drunk 3PO on his channel tonight talking about the new book that he's got come out. And uh, go find Critical Blast over on Odyssey. He's just set up his channel over there. Uh, so uh, just going to give him a shout out uh, as well. Don't forget, we're on all of the different social media platforms, 10 of them. That's 11 too many. Four different video platforms. We've got a Subscribestar account, the Discord server, the newsletter, all sorts of good stuff. And tomorrow, the H2O podcast at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. I think we got a topic. I think we've got an idea which rarely happens this far in advance. So go check that out uh, tomorrow night. That's it for today. Remember, the politicians hate you, the media lies to you, and there are four lights. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi for Me TV. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're watching Sci-Fi for Me TV. Delivering the multiverse since 2009.